if you think there's any concern for this kind of thing in your work environment, whether it's you know marginalizing women or whatever, you want to make sure that you can make it safe for the women or minorities or whomever it may be to be able to express their concerns and 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 then you need to be able to jump on it, right? Because if you give people the avenue to uh, blow the whistle, if you will, and you do nothing about it, that that's an even bigger problem. <laughs> Great experiences build great leaders. Great leaders build great teams. This is Building Great Sales Teams. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I've got Stefan Wiedner today. He's an expert in psychological safety and interpersonal skills. He's got several holdings. He's the CEO of Zarango.com. That's kind of like a money ball for business teams using how teams fit together to drive performance. He's also the CEO of Skillsetter.com, a flight simulator for interpersonal skills training geared towards counseling, education, social work, and more. And then lastly, uh, the CEO of Numi.com, a uh, professional coaches directory, which I actually had a chance to peruse a little bit. and was very impressed by that. And uh, I can't wait to hear the story how that came about, but we'll we'll kick it off here. Um, welcome to the show, Stefan. I appreciate you coming on. Doug, thanks for having me. It's fun uh, to talk to new audiences every day. So uh, appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, I mean, we're with your skill set. We're getting very deep into what makes teams tick in general. You know, I think that's important. You know, too many people try to classify. Okay, you know, we're just talking sales on this, or we're talking teams. That's it goes hand in hand. So let's kick it off with kind of the evolution of your career a bit. You started out as a constru- in construction management and then transitioned into a 14-year coaching career. So I imagine there's a story to that, you know, in going from construction to coaching. Yeah, there is. And uh, that is a pretty big jump. So I got out of university and I got my first job working for a construction management company. I loved it. They were a small little organization, worked out of my boss's house. In fact, his house was about five blocks away from my house. So it was great. I'd go home for lunch and, um, and the crew there were just really focused on doing excellent work and having fun while doing it. And as a new grad, in fact, I started there as a co-op uh, position, so I was still in school and then stayed on after graduation. And so what better place to work? Um, so fast forward a few years, their specialization was all about scheduling really large, complex con- construction projects. And there's not a lot of people that do that. Like when you start getting into that industry, it's kind of a niche within that industry. And it's something that we did really well. And I got all this training, got all this education. And I got to the point where I was the head scheduler for a hundred million dollar brand new hospital that was being built. And so I'd be on site, I'd be coordinating with 50 different companies. There's, you know, all the different subs, right? Everything from uh, the window guys to the concrete guys to rebar, et cetera. And um, I often found myself sitting in meetings with the lead architect and the lead engineers, there'd be a few different engineers, right? The mechanical and the civil, electrical, et cetera. So say half a dozen engineers and they're all 50, 60. And I was this young 20 something year old, right? Going, 
whoa, is this where I want to go? And is this what I want to be doing with my career? And and I think the answer in my head was a no. Like, so it's not that I hated the work. It's not that I, I was rather privileged in that regard. Like I, I was getting good pay. I was learning a ton and I was still kind of ambivalent about my work. I just didn't love it. It didn't excite me. It didn't get me jazzed. And so then I ended up working with a career coach to figure out sort of unpack that for myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then that got me into the whole coaching world and working with people and the, the kernel, uh, you know, the original seed for that concept started really when I was in university, because I, I studied business and, uh, some of the classes I had to take were around organizational behavior, industrial psychology, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I love those classes. Those were always my favorite. Um, I didn't so much care about finance. didn't always care about, you know, accounting and all that sort of stuff, but the organizational behavior, the leadership, those were the topics that really excited me. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. No, I love that because, you know, I find myself kind of in that stage too, where, all right, what did I really enjoy when I first started out? And it was a lot of the sales program stuff, right? More of the engineering, the sales program. And uh, that's what made me successful early on. And now that I've gone into more of a consulting role, that's kind of what I focus on. That's my client is the sales program versus the, the sales team or the, uh, the whole organization or the entrepreneur themselves. And so I definitely resonate with that. <clears throat> so I'm guessing when you got into coaching, you know, about two years in is when you started Numi.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So I was working on my own. I was doing my own solo thing, building up my clientele list and my reputation online and all that sort of stuff, doing all that marketing business building stuff. And, um, and then I ran into my business partner who uh, we've been working together ever since. And he at the time was in London and he was just finishing his MBA and a mutual, mutual friend of ours um, uh, went and visited him. In so she was touring through Europe and she met up with him and he was writing a business plan mm -hmm. all about basically taking coaching and putting it online. So remember, this was like 15 years ago, right? So, um, uh, you know, we were perhaps a little bit new or early to the game and we knew that there was going to be some significant online plays for around this concept of coaching. And so um, that's when we put our heads together and we thought, well, what could we do differently here? And our innovation to bring more coaching to the world was we actually created this app called uh, Pair Coach. And the uh, app was all about like basically your gym buddy for your life. Yeah. So we had a whole system where two people can coach each other, walk each other through their goals and figuring out what they wanted to do with their lives. And, um, and it was really cool. Like we had all kinds of really cool features. We made a lot of mistakes that entrepreneurs, uh, uh, you know, I could probably write a whole book on stupid things not to do and how not to burn your money <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so um, we ended up having to pivot from that because as cool as it was, and we got featured in a number of different places and got all these visitors and people using the app, we, we didn't have a solid revenue model. And back then it seemed like, uh, I think in the same year that we launched, YouTube was launched yeah. and YouTube for like a decade was not making money, right? right? It was, it was really figuring its revenue model out. And, and so, uh, yeah, I remember the, I don't know if you remember the dot com dot bomb era and, yeah. you know, like it was almost like 
oh, we don't need to worry about revenue. Let's just get eyeballs. <laughs> That's yeah. the new currency. <laughs> and, funding, and then next round of funding and next round of funding and eventually yeah. you sell something. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you got to make money at some point in time. So yeah. so after a little while, we had to pivot and and then that's how Numi evolved into what it is today. Uh, so that's the story there. Yeah, I was just assuming that like you were in the industry and you're like, how do I get clients? You know, where where's the directory for coaches? You know what I mean? And so when I went to it, I was like, why have I not seen something like this before? Because I'm I'm part of several masterminds and uh, I'm in the entrepreneur space. And, you know, every entrepreneur I know has some form of a coach. Right. But they're. I, I didn't know there was a central location to go to to kind of find them all. And as I was scrolling through, I, I, I looked up the ones for San Antonio. And, you know, it's everything you can think of. It's the psychological stuff. It's, you know, marketing. It's, you know, they're all very specific in certain areas. And, you know, you can find the area that you need and, and capitalize on that. So I think that's really cool. So let's talk about the term psychological safety. Okay. So sure. I, when I saw this term in your uh, press kit, you know, the first thing I'm thinking in my head is women in the workplace and feeling safe. That's the first thing I th that, that came to my head because that's been a big issue for me because uh, for a while there, all my top closers in solar were women and they're on a, you know, testosterone-fueled sales team, right? And I know I'm not correct and or well, not correct, but like I know that's the, the wrong frame of thinking that I'm having there. So can you kind of walk us through what is psychological safety? And well, I guess, yeah. why should the entrepreneur be aware of it and cognizant of it? Yeah. And I, I would say you're not necessarily wrong in what you just said. So we'll come back to that okay. about the women in, uh, you know, testosterone fueled sales environment. So um what is psychological safety? Maybe we should start there. Sure. And there's a definition provided by Amy Edmondson. She's a Harvard prof. She's researched this topic for over 20 years. And her definition is that it is a belief that within your team or within your work environment, you can say what's on your mind. You can speak up. You can say, uh, hey, Johnny, we have a problem here. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> or you can admit that you made a mistake. Or um, Whatever it is that needs to be said, you can say it without any fear of reprimand. You, there's no fear of a social consequence of some sort. So we're not just talking about, hey, if I speak up, the boss is going to fire me. Um, it's things like, you know, will people think I'm an idiot or will they think I'm just oppositional or will they think, uh, you know, there's some sort of negative consequence to our reputation. And so that's the definition. So I'll say it more succinctly. It's the belief that within your work environment, you can speak up, say what's on your mind without any fear of reprimand. So that's it. So I want to come back to that original statement you made about when you first heard about psychological safety, you said it made you think of high achieving women in a masculine work environment. And you didn't think that was psych safety. So, well, maybe let's unpack that a little bit. Like what, what's the problem with that? Or what's the is there an issue with these women in this masculine work environment? Yeah. I mean, you know, and we manage it the best we can, but they're out in the field every day. They're being trained by, you know, other men that are supposed to be sales professionals. And every now and then it happens and we cut them loose as quick as we can, but they may get hit on or they may, you know, there may be cursing going on or something like that. And we don't find out until we, 
until we have a, a woman in that environment and then she, you know, hopefully she feels safe enough to bring it to us without fear of um, consequence or anything. And then if she does, then we immediately rectify it. But that 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 was my original thought when I, I saw psychological safety. Mm. Yeah. Well, that is really relevant because you just said, like, hopefully they come to you and even yeah, mention it. And and what sucks is that women or people of uh, perhaps minorities of mm-hmm. all sorts feel like they're being marginalized and it's hard for them to call it out. Right. It's hard for them to say, hey, what the heck? You know, like um, I had another gentleman, he's head of a sales team mostly males and he goes on the road and he invites all the dudes to go hang out, you know, drink beers and have a good time. It's like, dude, you just, you just excluded 20% of your sales team. That sucks. Right. Sucks for them. So, um, well, and I, in his head, he probably had a fear of something happening. You know what I'm saying? So now that a, a, a woman is in the mix, then now it's a liability. You know what I mean? Like she's not a liability herself, but the, the, the guy that takes it too far is the liability. So he's just trying to avoid it altogether, which is discrimination itself. So it's like, yeah, I, right. I, I get where his initial thought was, but you know, we, we do little things to minimize that, you know, obviously we, we never, we never had an event where only the men, you know, showed up, it would be everybody showing up and then we won't pay for alcohol. You know what I mean? The leadership we're leaving early, we're leaving at nine 30, you know what I'm saying? We're in bed by 10 we're setting that example. So, you know, if something does happen after that, then, you know, we have to deal with that, but we're, we're, we're trying to lead by example in the sense of, okay, we're not drinking a bunch. We're not paying for drinks. We're not, you know, uh, fostering this party environment that a lot of that stuff happens in. Yeah. See, that's really awesome. Right. So you're trying to model the behavior that you want to see. And then therefore, when there are offenses, you can call attention to them and you can, you can draw some attention. What I would impress upon your listeners and folks out there is if you think there's any concern for this kind of thing in your work environment, whether it's, you know, marginalizing women or whatever, you want to make sure that you can make it safe for the women or minorities or whomever it may be to be able to express their concerns. And, and, and then you need to be able to jump on it. Right. Because if you give people the avenue to uh, blow the whistle, if you will, and you do nothing about it, that that's an even bigger problem <laughs> that you're going to have on your hands. So you need to ask yourself, what kind of organization do you want to build? And do you want to build a safe one where people can speak up and do so? And maybe, maybe it needs to be an anonymous way. Who knows, right? You need to figure out the right structure so that there is an avenue for folks to be able to say, you know what? I don't feel comfortable in this work environment. And here's why. And can you do something about it? A hundred percent. No, I appreciate the insight on that. And it, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, I want to stop there and just that there's kind of a lot there and yeah. are any questions or any thoughts emerge there, Doug? Yeah, right away. It's like I go, you know, so I, I'm a big self-evaluator, you know, and I think you have to do that in order to grow. And if you're not growing, then you're dying in a sense, right? Um, or you're stagnant, whatever you want to call it. So right away, I'm thinking about the times where I maybe sacrificed the psychological safety of my team because I reacted too quickly to a statement or to an idea or to a result. You know what I'm saying? 
And so right away, I'm like, okay, I could see how, you know, you can go through training to not do that, basically. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it gets down to, like, a, a very um, adolescent level. You know, when I think about my son, and uh, when he's at his worst, he's emotional. You know what I'm saying? So I'm guessing that this training kind of teaches you to, before you emotionally react to, um, I guess, use your brain. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that, that, there's some awesome, awesome insight there for yeah. sure. Uh, the language we would use is instead of responding, you react or rather instead of react, you respond. Right. Reacting is, is emotional. It's, it's that knee jerk kind of reaction and uh, responding is taking just that little pause. And absolutely. That's, that's something we focus on in the training. I want to go back to something else you said relating to that though, Doug was you mentioned that, Oh, I think in my team, I may have hurt or damaged psychological safety because I reacted. So tell me more about that. Like what, what do you think was the impact of that reaction that you had? Uh, uh, I guess it would uh, constrict communication is the biggest thing. So uh, I'll just give an example. And because I don't have a specific one. I could just see how I would do this. It's like, you know, your, your sales team comes in from the field from the day before they were in the field the day before they come in, you know, you got a goose egg for the day. That's a pretty common one. And then, uh, you know, when they start making the excuses right away, you know, you react with, well, you're just not putting in the work. You know, it's very cliche to say that in sales, in, in entrepreneurship in general, it's like, oh, you're not putting in the work. If you put in the work, you get the results. You didn't get the results. You didn't put in the work. And things aren't that binary all the time, you know, and, in the evolution of my career, what I've realized is respond instead of react. So responding would be asking three or four questions that would kind of evaluate their day and help them understand, okay, these action items that you have to take in prospecting in order to create a result of sales is where you fell short right here. You know what I'm saying? So today we need to focus on this metric. You know, if you double up that action, then you'll end up with the result because the numbers are there. You know, so that's a very basic thing that I would kind of walk through. But early on in my career, it was very like, you know, go do this instead of let's go do this or let's figure this out together. You know what I'm saying? And as I right. evolved, it got those those emotional reactions got less and less and less, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you see in turn from your team oh, as your reaction lower changed? Lower turnover. Um you know, more understanding when the business was suffering and they had to step up, you know what I mean? More of the just team mentality of, hey, let's accomplish this together. Let's overcome this obstacle together versus like, oh, well, you're going to, you know, you're all about the results and you're you're going to react to everything I say anyways. So I'm not going to communicate so we can solve a problem, you know? Yeah. 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 So what you're pointing to is, and this is was in your original question, so what, who cares about psychological safety? Why is, why should this as a business owner be of concern to me? And what you're pointing to right there is, is the value. The value is in the learning it's unpacking and uncovering learning because psychological safety is really the vehicle for teams to learn, to learn from one another to, okay, we have a problem. How are we going to solve it? And you're not just reacting, causing people to get frustrated and then leave. And when there's high turnover, that's a, that's a massive cost to the business. 
Um, you know, how much does it cost to find new people, bring them on, train them, et cetera. Obviously, um, certain environments that the turnover cost is not nearly as high in others, but it's something you want to be considering as a business. That is that is hitting your bottom line, right? Every time someone leaves. And that's not that's the hard cost. What about the soft cost, right? What when folks leave or get frustrated, they start talking to one another, morale drops, people get frustrated and results dwindle. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a fulfilling cycle there where uh, as things get worse, they get worse. (laughs) And if you can't interrupt it, you can't get better, right? You can't improve. You can't get out of that hole. Yeah. It becomes a freight train of fires that are really difficult to put out because of one person leaving and then the, uh, the catastrophic effect of that. So, you know, we can, we can, talk about this in the entrepreneur workspace but you've done it at a pretty large scale and uh y'all recently did some work with the orioles can you kind of walk through how y'all utilized your uh services and i'm i'm guessing with uh uh, zarango it was the was the vehicle for that with the orioles yeah that's right so zarango is our training arm Mm -hmm. of the business and and what we did there is we worked with their player development team and they have uh, roughly 80 people in that team. And we didn't work with all 80. We worked with their top uh, dozen or so. Mm-hmm. And um, they have that many player development folks because it's not just the Orioles, it's their minor league team. They have about a half a dozen teams that they support as well. Uh-huh. And uh, their player development staff are in different cities because those teams are in different city- cities. And so what we did is we came in and uh, supported them through um, about a six week training program. And that training program was all about interpersonal skills. It was training these managers in being able to pause and respond productively as opposed to reacting. And uh, at a higher level, what they were trying to achieve is um, really trying to bring um, their, like bring this sense of team teamness, we-ness together, uh, because in pro sports, it's a really interesting dynamic. You have, um, so often you have a mix of old guard, you know, the old guard, mm-hmm. this is the way we've been doing it. And, and they've really wanted to challenge the status quo. So if there were people that had been around the organization for 20, 30 years, and were saying, well, this is how we've done it. They wanted to be able to challenge that. And similarly, they wanted to support the new folks that were literally days or weeks in their roles yeah. into the position, right? To be able to say, look, if you're seeing things that should be done differently or you're like, you need to speak up. We need to create an environment where everybody feels like they can speak up. Also, during spring training, when everybody comes together, there's often heated discussions and even like, you know, sort of like super masculine clashes, right? Where two people don't see eye to eye. And, um, and they wanted to be able to not avoid those altogether, but turn those into more productive conversations. So it's not that the disagreement can't be there. It's just, what are we going to do with it? And let's make it more productive. So that was one of the, the explicit goals. And, and there's also another issue with that sort of the tenured people and the newbies mm-hmm. um, is uh, contract status. So really strange thing where in that arena and that field of work, many people are not contracted long-term. It's 
you are on a one-year contract or a two-year contract. And so that affects what you do and how you how how much risk you're willing to take. Mm-hmm. And the the Orioles, if you recall, a couple of years ago, they were basement dwellers. They were right at the bottom. Yeah. And so they needed to do diff- things differently. And it starts with their player development, right? Their future, the the product they put on the field next year and the year after yeah. is you there's signs of it in the minor leagues right now and what they're doing with those players. So mm-hmm. So this is their future plan. Like this is it. This is their strategy for how to get better is yeah. to grow and facilitate the the leadership within their uh, player development team. I love that. It's such a a long-term strategy too, you know. And and in baseball it's a lot more accepted, you know what I mean, that you can take that time 5 years to develop this championship team, you know. In basketball it's like 2 or 3 years and in football you better win the championship next year, your coaches on the chopping block kind of stuff, you know? And so yeah. uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. But what, what I like about it is that, okay, instead of us just clashing, you know, old tenure, new tenure, old school, new school, whatever the case is. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do really like the money ball analogy that you used about that part of the business because it was very much that, right? And I actually just watched it a couple weeks ago, so it's funny that you referenced it. And it, it, it very much was about that. Um, what's his name? Brad Pitt's character. Um, of course, I remember Brad Pitt, not the actual guy's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, man, and it, it, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. But anyways, so he came, he, he got this way of doing business that was not baseball's way of doing business, right? And created a strategy around it, and it revolutionized the league, you know? And so the same thing, is they're trying to create the same thing within the Orioles organization, but around psychological safety, which makes it a ton of sense. Because if you just keep doing the same thing and you're losing, I mean, how are you going to turn it around, right? And you need those new ideas, you need those fresh ideas. And then I think the most important thing is the strategy for when the clash does happen, like you were saying, a real strategy and not just like, all right, whoever screams the loudest is going to going to win this one you know what I mean or you got one person in the seat at the head of the table that ultimately makes a decision and everything falls on them and that's got to be exhausting so I I can imagine two pieces of my staff coming together and coming to a conclusion together and then coming to me and saying hey this is the way we want to do this versus me having to see these two opposing point of views and then having to like make this decision in my head where you know, one's going to be upset and one's going to be happy. You know what I mean? And then if it's the wrong decision, it all falls on me versus the creation of that decision with those two together. So what, what do you think are some good strategies to handle conflict like that when two people are very rooted in a, in a strategy towards a, approaching the marketplace? Yeah, the the skill we point to and train folks in is the skill of reflecting process. So what is what does it mean to reflect process? Well, maybe I'll start with reflecting content. So there's three levels of reflecting, reflecting content, reflecting feeling, and reflecting process. And I'll start at the top because it's pretty easy and understandable. When you reflect content, someone says something, you reflect it back. You you paraphrase. You don't want to parrot. You don't want to say word for word what they said. But if they're saying, hey, I'm really, uh, you know, I went and made 10 phone calls and um, here's what all those customers said. So then you want to paraphrase back. Oh, so you made a bunch of calls and you're hearing the same thing again and again from the customers and it's blah. 
And that allows them to go, yeah, you're right. That's that's exactly what I heard. Okay. okay. So it it's reaffirming for the other person that, okay, they understand me, they get it. And then there's reflecting um, feeling. Mm-hmm. Reflecting feeling is, oh, so you made 10 calls and it's it was frustrating for you or illuminating or whatever emotion you want to use to describe what they're saying. Often when we communicate, we don't say I'm angry, I'm right. frustrated, I'm upset, mm-hmm. but you can infer it, right? There's a, there's a, you know, people are saying words and you can infer what that emotion is. And by reflecting the emotion, Again, it has someone go, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that is really frustrating because mm-hmm. maybe they didn't even, you know, the the sentiment was there, but they didn't, they couldn't put their finger on it, right? So when you say, hey, sounds like you're really frustrated. They're like, yeah, that's what you're aiming for. You're aiming for that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and the beauty with checking in and saying, hey, you know, it sounds like you're frustrated. Did you get that right? It allows them to go, no, nah, it's not frustration. Actually, it's a little bit more um sadness. I'm just, I'm kind of sad. Like I'm bummed. I'm totally bummed that I haven't, I made 10 calls and I'm not getting the response I wanted. Yeah. Um, Okay. You're, you're bummed. Got it. So then there's reflecting process. So this is where, um, you know, to use a sports analogy, Mm -hmm. you want to think about when we're working, we're often on the field, right? We're, we're carrying the ball. We're hitting the ball. We're on the field. Mm -hmm. And what you need to be able to do is take yourself above and put yourself into the stands and point out what you're seeing on the field. So when two people are coming together and it's like two Rams bumping heads, you want to say, okay, I'm noticing we're at a bit of a standstill here, guys. There's heated emotions and we're not going to come to an agreement if we just keep duking it out the way we are now. Mm -hmm. So how can we approach this differently? So notice how I'm just I'm just shining a light on what's going on and what I'm seeing and then inviting participation saying how can we deal with this differently what might we do differently and then that causes people to kind of stop and reflect and go oh yeah crap you're right we aren't going to get anywhere here mm-hmm. I'm and then you might even be able to point out like look are you guys just disagreeing because you're both stubborn or are you disagreeing because you have a fundamental difference in beliefs or are you, you know, what, like, let's get to the source of the matter here um, and being able to call attention to what's actually happening. Um, and that, that's a challenging skill. It, it, it takes, it takes practice to get it right. Yeah. And you know, the, the first two pieces of it make a lot of sense. I feel like the execution of the third piece is where the magic happens. You know, that facilitator knowing how to structure the strategy to execute the third piece, that's like, you know, a million dollar skill. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because that 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 is really where the magic is going to happen. But the first two pieces, you know, honestly, what it sounds like a lot to me is the way that salespeople talk to customers, right? And this is just people in general. You're having a conversation with your wife. You're having a conversation with a customer. You're having a conversation with a peer at work. It's like validation is the first step. Not you're right, but I hear you. You know what I mean? And then validating their their feelings on top of that, what they're going through, because you can't tell someone what to feel. They are feeling what they're feeling, and you may not always know it, like you said. And so them identifying it lets you know, okay, they're in this headspace. You know what I'm saying? So I need to bring them out of this headspace so that we can find a solution. Because they may just want to be in that headspace, you know, and that's not productive, right? So I love the strategy, and I can see how a lot of our listeners can use that with their businesses or their sales team. So I love it. 
Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the basically the same skills. And that's what we've noticed with interpersonal skills. They're the same thing everywhere. <laughs> oh, the we originated our work uh in the world of counseling. Yeah. Where, you know, you have therapists who are sitting in a room talking to someone. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, their skills are the same skills as a salesperson. You want to be able to have the other person go, yeah, you get me. <laughs> you understand me, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to make a sale when the other person is confident that you know where they're coming from and you're not just trying to push something on them. You're seeking to understand them before you trying to just force them to buy something that you want. <laughs> okay. So now I'm curious, um, skillsetter.com, the way you yeah. described it was it's a flight simulator for interpersonal skills. So how does that program work? And, you know, so I, I see the problem and how you guys solve the problem through training and education how does skillsetter.com work? Yeah. So skillsetter is the, it, it's the practice component. Mm-hmm. So often I suspect that you've done training with sales staff and you go through role-playing and um, you know, you go through scripts and you have people rehearse scripts and what to say and how to say it. Well, um, skillsetter is just one additional means of practicing. And the way it works is we have simulated environments, team-based, work-based environments where you'll have a one-on-one interaction or it could be a team-based thing. And there are clips that are challenging. So it's, you know, it could be of a client saying, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, You know, they're presenting some sort of objection, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to respond to that. So respond by not just trying to convince them, but respond by saying, okay, I understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. And when you practice responding and you're, you're responding using your webcam and your microphone and all that, right. just like you would kind of talking to a zoom mm-hmm. in, in a zoom meeting. And, um, and you want to be practicing one skill at a time. So we try to break it down and we take clips that really require one or maybe two skills at once so that when you're practicing, you're practicing those, those skills. So in sales, right, there's a, a series of steps you might take throughout to go from sort of interest to close. Mm-hmm. And so we would maybe look at a number of those steps and try to break down just one of the steps. Okay, let's just work on this one today. Yeah. And tomorrow I'll work on step two and then step three, step four. So that in a real game, in a real live call with a real person, you put them all together. So that's how it works. And uh, sorry, there's one additional piece that I, I failed to mention, which is you get a clip, you record a response, and you're provided with a rubric for what it looks like when you effectively use that skill. So when you're reflecting emotion, for example, or feeling, mm-hmm. it tends to look like this. And we give people tips and then they can self-evaluate. So they can go, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't quite capture that right. Or, um, and, and then they get to re-record. Because, of course, when you're practicing basketball or practicing piano, you get to try again and again and again. Same thing here. We take the same principles. You practice again and again and again until you get it right. Then you submit your response. And we have people on the back end that are interpersonal skills experts who give you feedback and say, oh, you know. And often what they're giving feedback on is not what you said, but how you said it. So we're often looking at those, you know, uh, those nonverbals or your tone mm-hmm. um, because what we find is that so many people have the right skills, but they don't have the same 
impact because their emotional expression or, you know, the words kind of stumble a little bit. And if it could just be a little bit more fluid, it'll just land better. So that's it in a nutshell. What questions do you have regarding that? Well, I mean, I just want to point out that, you know, we, in, in, in my industry and I'm, I'm a sales org, so we've, we've done solar, we've done security, we, you know, and it's mainly door to door. So things like this are really important to us. But what we do is we, you know, we do role play on a daily basis. And what happens is you got, you have the more experienced guys kind of going through the motions and their eyes are glossing over during role play. They know exactly what to say. They know exactly how to overcome the ejection and they're losing their interpersonal skills in how they deliver those things. So the, the idea in a lot of role play is to take them to the max of their emotions, you know? So we'll like, play music in the backgrounds to make them talk louder. We'll have things going on around them to like irritate them a little bit. You know what I'm saying? To kind of stretch out their ability to focus and concentrate and interact with the customer. And the body language is really important too. So we'll do role play where we're over animating the body language, right? But by the time they get to the field, they're back to center instead of starting from zero. They've warmed up, they've overdone it all, and then they get to the field, and now they're just a little bit above average so that right where they need to be when they, when they experience those things with that customer. But the idea that maybe at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when they're already to a rough start, they could log into this program and go through some role play and go through some of those that training and then go back out to the field and kind of reset if they need to, or that we don't have to do role play every day because we are doing this uh, this this type of training I think is pretty cool. And then the way y'all break it up too, because I think that's important. You were talking about the sales process earlier. You know, and ours is very simple, very basic, intro, qualify, present, close. And when we role play, we'll role play a piece of that first and then we'll kind of graduate into the whole thing, right? And so I'm, I imagine that that program works similarly. Yeah, it, it's flexible. So it can be designed that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what, I'm not, I'm curious if this system could address the need that you just described one where you're out in the field, it's two in the afternoon and you're feeling a little flat. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that the system allows, uh, and this may be depends on, I guess, how you do the role play, but, mm-hmm. uh, what it allows people to do is see themselves. They get to, they have to rewatch and they have to assess yeah. their own skills. So I think it brings a greater level of awareness. Um, especially if someone can point out, oh, notice how flat you were. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, one of the things we might do is we have people um, rewatch what they said without any words. You can't hear it. No audio. Oh, yeah. Right. So then you see your emotion. You're like, oh, wow, I had no emotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I talked for one minute and I literally made no uh, noticeable emotions with my face. <laughs> That so often happens and you're unaware of it, right? You're just, so perhaps this type of training would elevate people's Mm self-awareness so that they can modulate their actions a little bit more when they're out in the field. Yeah. And just right away, I can think, you know, when you're starting out, just recording your role play, you know, (laughs) could create so much perspective for your people. And just that it does that function, but it does it through something that, you know, probably 
in, in my organization would be a level of training that they have to go through to, to get promoted or to complete their training, whatever the case is, and it kind of requires it to be done, and they have to see themselves like that. You know, we tell them all the time, practice your pitch in the mirror and pitch yourself, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe like one out of four of them do it, and then they come back in the next day and kind of give us the feedback on what it was like, and then the rest are kind of like, oh, yeah, it was fine. Well, you know the ones that really <laughs> did it because they have a deep, you know, they have deep questions about it and they have an understanding of the way that they look when they pitch, you know. And so yeah. um, anything that does more of that is going to be going to be huge for them. So with all three of your, your businesses, and it is centered around, you know, coaching interpersonal skills and psychological safety, what is kind of next for you or your organizations? What are y'all, what are y'all looking to do next? Um, well, the, yeah, what we're doing is setting ourselves up to really scale on the training side. So we've got the technology piece with skill setter. So Rango uh, being our training arm is leveraging skill setter. We're a customer of skill setter because we needed to make sure we make a distinction between the software product and the training because they're, they're, they're interrelated, but they're not the same. Like, a we, we wanted to be, have that distinction. Right. Um, and so for us, it's about, yeah, being ready to scale and knowing that there's also really great AI coming down the road uh, very soon. Right now, our scaling strategy relies on a lot of humans, uh, especially those feedback providers. They're the really critical, unique element that we have. So when people record their responses, we give them accurate, yes, and useful feedback, right? Because you don't want to overwhelm people with too much if folks are a little bit on the weaker side, right? Like you want to be able to make it helpful for them. Mm -hmm. And if you tell them, here are the 28 things you could do better, it's too much. <laughs> so, so that's a skill in and of itself is noticing where they're deficient and what the lowest hanging fruit is. You know, if there's only one thing they could improve, what would that be? So, uh, but what we're uh, uncovering with AI, which technology is just accelerating so fast. It's amazing. Um, we're looking at three different things and being able to provide instant feedback to people, which is number one, we're looking at tone. Mm -hmm. So no matter what the language is, you know, when someone's yelling, you know, when they're mad, you can detect emotion from words uh, or rather from tone. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're assessing, we're creating AI that can give people feedback saying, here's what emotions we're detecting from your tone. And then you can modulate it accordingly. The second is we're looking at the words that you say. And the way that's being done with AI now is it, it just gets transcribed to text. Right. And then that text can be analyzed. So it can be analyzed for things like, are you being judgmental? Mm -hmm. Or are you being open and approachable? And so we can give people feedback on that. And then the third one is on your nonverbals. We can detect, I think we already talked about that, like detecting emotion when there's no sound at all. So it's just looking at the, the visual cues and determining, A, what emotions are you presenting, if any? And mm -hmm. B, is it congruous with where the client is at, right? Because if the client's telling you, my dog just died, you don't want to be smiling. Right. Uh, you want to have the right affect for that particular situation. So these are all technologies that are coming down the pipe and we'll you know, we'll have those eventually, but uh, in the meantime, we have to bridge the gap with <laughs> humans. Um, and so that's, that's a long answer to your short question. What's next for us in terms of 
um, our business. No, I love it because it, it really is what is next for the virtual sales industry when you think about it that way. Because just, just imagine you're a company and you have, I don't know, 50 sales conversations a day. And to every day be able to take all the data from those sales conversations, evaluate it, break it down, and then turn around and see, okay, what was the most successful tone? What was the most successful dialect? And what was the most successful body language? And then have your new salespeople coming in and being able to train them on that, you know? And I've interviewed uh, a few other CEOs that have softwares that are kind of going towards that, you know? And, um, but they do still have the, the human element into it, like, a, like a, an appointment setter, you know, a, a software where it's the CRM and the human element sets the appointment, you know what I mean? And then they're tracking the sales conversation after that, you know? And this is where it gets really heavy into, okay, how do I collect all this data and package it in such a way that makes, one, I can train my current people, but train the new people coming in. This is, you know, how we how we look when we say this thing, and this is the words we use. And, the, I mean, you could just create a assassin sales team by doing that. And I get real nerded out on it, especially when we're talking about AI. And one of the questions that I, I typically ask around this is, okay, at what point does AI just replace salespeople altogether? What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Great question, right? Uh, AI is really getting to the point where, uh, what's that, uh, what's Turin? Is that his name? I can't remember. The researcher who basically developed the test for AI. And it's, it's when you present the AI to a human, can they detect that it's a robot or not? Right. That that's basically the test. And a lot of AI is at that point where you're like, am I talking to a real human or not? And so obviously with, um, you know, any form of chat communication where you can't see the other person, it's easier to replace the human with a Mm -hmm. bot of some sort. And, um, I, I can't see sales completely going away. Like I just don't see it. I think, human interaction is so important and we will discount when it's a robot, even if that robot is really, really convincing. I think there's always a part of us that's like, uh, that's just a robot. And so I want the real human being. I want the real thing. And I, so in terms of sales, I don't think it's going away. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's our motivation for building our technology is not to replace humans at all. Uh-uh. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to empower humans to do human things better. Absolutely. And let the bots do what the bots do better. Let the computers do what computers do better, which is, you know, heavy computation and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But in, interpersonal skills, that ain't going away. I'm sorry. Teams are always going to have to interact with one another in a sales environment. Sure. I think there's some elements that can be replaced mm-hmm. with uh, humans can be replaced by robots, but I, not the whole thing. Right. I don't think what, what, what are your thoughts? I'd love to hear from you, Doug. You're, you're, you spend all your days in sales. So yeah. what are no, your thoughts? I, I, I would agree with you a hundred percent. There's uh, a, you know, and in a hundred years, it's going to be called a machinist or something. I don't, I don't know how to say it, but you want to deal with a human. There's a preference to deal with humans and it's because we're human and that's how we connect. There's a reason it's called interpersonal skills personal, which is people, you know? <laughs> and so the idea that uh, a robot or AI technology is ever going to be able to replace that, I, 
you know, I would agree with you, but how you stay ahead of it in terms of not being replaced, I guess you could say, is using the AI in order to benefit your sales presentation or your sales conversation, whatever the case is. You know, uh, Chris Pearson, um, was it Bell Technologies, I think. They have a CRM software, very much like I told you, and I asked him that in the middle of it because I was inspired by it. I was like, okay, but what you're talking about is eventually going to replace the salesperson. He's like, no, and here's why. When you look at a character of text, that character contains about seven bytes of data, right? And um, in order for a human to trust another human, it takes something like 15,000 bytes of data. Well, that same amount of data can be achieved by a human talking for seven seconds. So you think about, you know, the amount of text you would have to write out and type out and the story you would have to tell when a human can get you to trust them in about seven seconds and the no like and trust factor in order to create a purchase. Um, AI has a long way to go, you know, <laughs> and, you know, we, we know that that will scale, but at, at the same time, you can, it's going to be incredibly difficult to replace that human factor because we are, we are machines ourselves. We are the first AI, you know what I'm saying? So how are you, and we're constantly evolving in that sense, at least in the brain, you know, and so how are you ever going to catch up? I don't, I don't see computers catching up to us. So yeah. that's my thoughts. Day they, they did the day they do um maybe as a species will will no longer live i don't know yeah we'll have a lot more to worry about <laughs> yeah yeah i i want to highlight just one thing you said there it that no like and trust piece mm-hmm. i think ultimately that's what we're trying to help people with with uh, the interpersonal skills training is yeah. increasing that quotient you know that and a lot of it, like you said there's so much data so we're collecting so much data when we're interacting with one another that tells you I know this person, I like this person, I trust this person. And um, and so it's increasing that quotient. We don't use no like trust, we use ETA. So it's demonstrating expertness, trustworthiness, and A is basically attractiveness or likability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's pretty cool. I like that ETA. So yeah. um, I'm curious if y'all, so obviously you, you coach the individuals in the organization, right? But what what can an organization do as a whole to increase that psychological safety and interpersonal skills? You know, besides hiring you guys, like what are some well some things that they can? Yeah, you know, I I would imagine. So one one of my uh, I guess favorite CEOs in terms of culture is Todd Peterson with Vivint, right? So not only did he create a visual culture for his salespeople, but he also was able to foster a um, community culture. So like each sales team in different cities and stuff had their own basketball league that they, that they were a part of. They were on the basketball team. So one of the reasons that their turnover was so low is because the salesperson wouldn't just say, I, I want to quit because I don't like working here. They would say, well, I don't want to quit because I have a basketball game with my team next week. You know what I mean? So it created this community within the company. So that would, to me, would be something that would, that would be, uh, could be initiated from the company standpoint. So when we're looking at psych- psychological safety and interpersonal skills, what are some things that companies can do to promote, to promote those? 
Yeah, uh, it's an awesome question. And I wish more CEOs and leaders would be thinking about that. So the first thing uh, I'd recommend is to create a strategy to number one, um, and this comes out of Amy Emmonson's work and her most recent book called Fearless Organization or Fearless Organizations, plural. And she recommends number one is you set the frame. So as a leader, you want to be able to say, look, folks, yeah, we need to sell widgets or you know, build better machines or whatever it is that we do. We also want to do that. So the vehicle through which that we want to improve is psychological safety, or you can, you know, maybe you call it a fail safe work environment or a a speak up culture, you know, use a phrasing that makes sense for you and your organization. And then, um, and then think about invite inviting participation. That's sort of step two. So step one is sort of setting the frame. Here's what we're interested in. This is what's important to us. Step two is inviting participation. And you need to ask what makes sense in your organization? How do you want people to be contributing their ideas? So, you know, if you want to have a better restaurant, you might want to put little cards that people can fill out when they're at their sitting at their table saying, this is what I liked or didn't like, or maybe you have an NPS score popping up for customers, or you have an internal employee NPS score, whatever mechanism you create, you want to make sure that it's allowing people to contribute their ideas and might be something as informal as, Hey, let's create a basketball team. Mm -hmm. Because when people are hanging out, playing basketball, they're inevitably going to be talking about work. Yeah. And they're going to share ideas, right? That's there's there's some cross pollination there, even if it's not the explicit number one reason for having a basketball team. Um, so inviting participation, how do you do that? And you ideally you can get your team to kind of contribute ideas there. And then the third thing is you want to make sure that you're responding productively. So you want to make sure that when people are giving their ideas, whether it's on a little you know a little cue card or some sort of survey or on Slack, mm-hmm. you're responding in a way that says, okay, I hear you, and um, it gets incorporated into the business in some way. And not always, like sometimes you'll say, okay, great idea. I totally disagree. And here's why. Yeah. And that's okay. You, you know, it's not about agreement. It's about making sure people are heard. So um, for example, there's, uh, I know f- some of the structures that companies have put into place are things like weekly check-ins. Mm-hmm. So with your manager, you have a weekly check-in And here's the structure for that check-in. And you might want to be considering now that you've heard about psychological safety, like you might want to tailor your questions to things like what thought, what are you not sharing? Yeah. You You know, what have you not told me about? Yeah. Do you feel like if you give your manager an idea that it's going to be shot down or you think you're going to be heard, you know? And so, yeah. And, and, but here's the whole deal. and, And I coach this too is, those weekly check-ins or like, you know, so I, I had 110 salespeople at one point. And so I had a hierarchy of check-ins essentially, but every week or a couple of weeks, you would get a check-in from your manager, your regional VP or me. Right. And so you were being checked in on in terms of your progress. And then your immediate manager was the assistant manager in that hierarchy. And so they were dealing with you every day. You know, but you're that, that 15 minutes of checking in and saying, hey, one, how are you doing? You know, that, that question could be the whole 15 minutes, you know? And so, um, but then, yeah, the next question being, hey, if you bring something to the table, whether it be, you know, turf, you think we need to work, a product you think we need to sell or whatever the case is, are, are you feeling like that's going to be heard, you know? 
And it may happen naturally in the conversation when I ask how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing great, but I think I'd be doing a lot better if I had this, you know? And that's, yeah. you know, that's that natural, con- man, so much can be solved and so much perspective gained by just, especially when you're in a large organization, by just calling that entry-level person and listening to them. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're hearing from the middle management every week. You know, you'll have meetings set up for that. But a lot of times that communication from the top all the way down can create such a great pulse on the organization that you see things coming before anybody else does, which is really cool. Yeah. Super great insights there. Uh, absolutely. Like, I love what you said about um, the question first being, how, how are you doing? And that might be the whole question. And just think about that for a second, because we're all about results and we're all about making more sales and making more money and all that sort of stuff, solving big problems. But if someone goes on a 15 minute sidebar conversation about their kids and how their child is struggling with whatever and this and that, like that, think about how impactful that 15 minutes is for them and think about how likely they are then to contribute whatever ideas, whatever, you know, their sense of psychological safety is going to go through the roof. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Because someone just, yeah, because someone just gave them the time of day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really powerful. So don't forget about that as a manager. Sure, you want to be all about results, but that humanness, I think, is so important for psychological safety, for building a, an environment where people feel like they can say what, is of concern for them and someone will be there to hear it. Yeah. And you know what inspired that when we created that program that we did that with, it was, we were on a road trip and I went out to meet the team on the road trip to, to show face, shake hands and kiss babies. You know what I mean? And in my head, that's what it was for. And then one of, one of the guys says to me, he's like, uh, so what do you do here? Or who are you? So that was the first indicator, like, <laughs> all right, so our branding needs to have me, you know, we need to have our leadership team in there. So we, we put that into the branding of the opportunity meetings and the orientations and stuff. But, uh, and then he was like, man, you're freaking rich, aren't you? You're like a millionaire, huh? In his head, that was a reality, which I wasn't. I mean, I think I did like 300 grand that year, you know? And uh, it was my first year that we actually blew up in business. And so I, I wasn't a very good business owner yet. And so, um, so it, basically, I allowed my entry-level salespeople to shape the uh, idea of me versus giving it to them. You know what I'm saying? And that's when those 15-minute start conversations started helping out, and I was able to relate to them about the kids in school and struggling in school. Yeah, my kids are going through the same thing right now. You know, I'm human too. I'm not this, like, mythological figure that can't be spoken to or... You know what I mean? You can't, you can bring me your problems. You know, I'm a problem solver. That's why I'm in the position I'm in, right? And so uh, I, I could see how this thing could really evolve. And I love the work that you're doing and love talking to you today for sure. So one of the last things I like to ask at the end of my episodes is um, what does legacy mean to you and what legacy do you want to leave behind? Mm. Yeah, legacy to me is just that. It's like, it's, what persists after you're gone, what carries on. And I think a great, it doesn't have to be after you're dead. (laughs) It's after you're no longer involved. And so a legacy is really all about empowering. It's like coming up with the vision, the, the concept, and then creating an infrastructure 
an environment where other people can run with it. Um, and so empowering those to keep it going. And my, what I want to leave behind ultimately is I want to create workplaces where people feel like they can show up and give the, give it their best. So the enemy in my world is ambivalence. It's someone who's like, eh, punching the clock. Yeah. And, and I want to create environments where everybody feels like they can show up to work and be their best, really lean in. That, that, that's my legacy. And, and when people do that, of course, um, then I really think that the world's biggest problems are all going to get solved. Hunger, climate change, you name it. We as humans, we have the capacity to solve all those problems if we all just show up and give it our best. Because right now, I think it's the tip of the iceberg, maybe 15%, maybe 20% are doing that. Yeah. That's well, a lot of people. If you even get to 50%, it's a game changer, you know? I think absolutely. Even, you know, even to go from 25 to 30% would be a game changer. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. <laughs> so much of that is like, being responsible to the employee or salesperson versus, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what is in it for me? You know, I've sent several people out of my organization because I didn't see them growing in it. You know, maybe I referred them to another entrepreneurial friend or whatever the case was, but not being selfish with them because they make you a few more sales a week, you know, and that, you know, equates to a few more hundred dollars in profit, you know, wanting genuinely wanting to help people and put them in the right seat versus the profitable seat, you know, and it, Love we, that. All, we all got to run businesses, you know what I mean? But, um, we should all aspire to run that 30% business where everybody's bought in and, and keyed into the same mission or 50% and so on and build it from there. All right, brother. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, gave us a ton of value today and perspective on psychological safety, interpersonal skills. I think they're incredibly important to building great sales teams uh, if you guys get a chance, go to zarango.com forward slash free PSI for a free psych safety and assessment. And then uh, if they want to reach out to you, the best place for that is LinkedIn. Is that correct? Indeed. Yeah. Follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think you'll probably put the URL in the show notes or yeah. Uh, yeah. If not, just search my name, Stefan Wiedner, and uh, you'll find me there. All right. Stefan, I appreciate you coming on the show today. It was a ton of fun. Thanks, Doug. All right, let's get building. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Great Sales Teams. Be sure to execute on what you just heard and let's get building. As always, remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you consume podcasts. You can also head on over to buildinggreatsalesteams.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything that's going on with the podcast. See you next time.